HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. Since 2009, HRN podcasts have been exploring the wide world of food, beverage, and agriculture. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org. This episode is brought to you by Roberta's, home of Heritage Radio Network for 10 years. Learn more about Roberta's at robertaspizza.com. We talk about food. We talk about music. With musical dudes. Finger on the pulse. Snacky Tunes. Hello and welcome to Snacky Tunes. I'm your host, Darren Bresnitz. Today, I chat with Cream Co. Meats CEO Clifford Pollard about his game-changing butcher company. He shares how he got his start in the San Francisco dining scene, his approach to working with farmers and spreading his message around the world, and what he likes to listen to when he's breaking down whole animals. And then we dip into the archives for performance from Triple Hex, who swung by in 2016 to share their full-length album, Bust for Life. Fans of Bauhaus and 70s New York rock and roll loved this album, as did we. They play some tracks and talk about what went into the recording. So please sit back, relax, and enjoy Snacky Tunes here on Heritage Radio Network. I just wanna fuck. 
love songs. I just wanna fuck. I don't wanna love songs. I just wanna fuck. I don't wanna love songs. I just wanna fuck. Oh yeah, you and me. Bring your friend and make it free. Ask your friend to come along. We'll stay up all night. Clifford, welcome to Snacky Tune. Thanks for sitting down with us. The sun is shining, and we're happy to have you on the show. It is indeed. Glad to be here. Yeah, I know. I mean, the rain has been crushing us, and I finally feel that summer is right around the corner, which is grilling season and all of the great things, the smoke, the drinks, the outside. You excited for this time of year? All, all those meaty things. Yeah, of course. I mean, it's, it's been a brutal one for us, like in the processing distribution space but also for our producers i mean they're getting hammered out there so yeah i think a lot of people who don't live in or close to farmland they go like oh the rain like we're filling with reservoirs which is great right it's it's like murdering strawberries and destroying (laughs) crops and the mud and and the waste and the rot and even getting to farmers markets makes it really complicated for local supply chain issues Super, super tough. And I mean, with for the farmers, like with all the ruminants that we work with, all the cattle, mm-hmm. the sheep, I mean, when they're out in pasture, that's just flooded. You know, what they're turning it into is like a big mud pit, which, of mm-hmm. course, nobody wants to see. It's not great for the soil when you no. have this much water all at once. It really has a kind of a, a different type of impact than you think. So mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. now I know you're up in the Bay Area and you've you've spent the majority of your professional career starting with cooking up there what's kept you to that part of the world i mean really the food culture you know it's Mm. just the bay area has such a good culture for food the farm direct ethos the seasonality ethos um i you know when it comes to being a culinary capital i think that the west coast is still very much so and norcal is kind of like the core Mm -hmm. of that for the west coast yeah, I mean, it's definitely, I think, when I was growing up on the East Coast, hearing about Alice Water and the whole Farm to Table movement and everything, which now seems, I don't want to say secondary, because it's definitely not, but I remember eating a shape for the first time and being like, oh, it's just Dover Soul, but then realizing it's like, oh no, like Dover Soul and having the name of the right. tomato and potato on the menu started sure. here. Yeah, and you know, Chez Panisse is such a great emblematic kind of institution for mm-hmm. that farm to fork movement. And still today, I mean, you go in there, the menus are written so simply. There's like five to six ingredients per dish, but the technique that they apply to the produce, and then of course the effort that they put into sourcing mm-hmm. those different items, you could really—I mean, it really translates. It really comes through on that final on that final plate. It's just incredible. It's so interesting to use that word simplicity and and the word sourcing and to go, we're not hiding behind anything. There isn't 30 things on the plate, which has its, has its place. You sure. know, I'm not besmirching that, yep. but they're showing when you have really good product and you work with local purveyors and you have good relationship with your butcher and things like that, you can say like, Hey, like, yeah, this, this dish has four dishes, four ingredients. It's good. Yeah. And, and we're not even including salt and uh, olive oil in this. Oh, it's incredible. I mean, I, I used to work at the farmer's market. So after mm-hmm. culinary school, after cooking, cooking professionally, I 
was was like a stint at the farmers markets like two three years I think, and when you work with those farmers, there's a very specific window of time, like a three day to like five day window mm. where the farmer is just like jumping out of their boots. They're mm-hmm. so excited because mm-hmm. that peach or that nectarine mm-hmm. or that whatever is just like peaking. It's right there. And so, you know, having that degree of curation at the markets up here and then kind of carrying that forward to the restaurants and then eventually to the plates. I mean, really the produce speaks for itself. I mean, it really is that good. Yeah. I remember being up in, at uh, Montreal and I didn't even know they grew white asparagus there. And it was just happened to be there for the week of white asparagus and everywhere you went, that was that same thing was like, same. you gotta eat, mm-hmm. you gotta eat like the farmer selling it. And I was like, this is awesome. And then at the same time, I'm like, oh, I'm bummed because white asparagus will probably <laughs> never be this good. This good ever again. Yeah. Else. Um, so I know that you were working in kitchens. Yep. Um, but then you started working, as you said, in farmer markets and yep. getting more to the purveyor side. What pulled you out of back a house? I mean, I loved it. Loved cooking. Mm-hmm. Um, loved being in the kitchen. Loved the atmosphere. I think I was noticing that I was really, really good at like the business side of Mm. the kitchen operations and, Mm -hmm. you know, working with the purveyors and making sure that the walk-in was properly stocked and taking inventory. And so I kind of, while working in kitchen started, started kind of like moving towards management or kind of managing the sourcing and the costing. And at some point was like, you know, I really like this work a lot. I wonder where else I could do this work in the food space. I really enjoyed the connection of working with the producers and buying at the kitchen level. And so I was just looking for other opportunities in food and stumbled across this company called Pray the Ranch Meat Company. Mm -hmm. Um, They're one of the first farm direct aggregators in the Bay Area and joined them as farmer's market manager. And that's what really just like opened my eyes an explosion of the Bay Area's produce, the mm. aggregate California, just like seeing that firsthand, breathing it day in, day out at the farmer's market. It just really made me fall more in love with what California has to offer when it comes to the produce that we produce in the state. You know, parallel to that idea of farmer's market, which now feels, I don't want to say, again, second place, but if you live in a major market, and there's restaurants or even most places have some sort of farmer's market CSA. Um, you know, you drive anywhere sort of in the Western part of the country that's close to farm country and you can get strawberries, fruit, sort of produce, there's trucks on the side of the road. And similar to that, you know, animal butchery has become the same where, you know, now it's always commonplace to see. I mean, if you lived in New York, you'd see like duck breast from the Hudson Valley or things like that. Sure. Um, but going back to when you were starting to work in this time, what was the state of this artisanal butchery, this idea of that you could get, you know, meat and protein direct from farmers outside of, let's say, eggs or maybe the occasional fowl breast? Yeah, you know, it existed. It was challenging. And I think mm-hmm. that that was really the, the issue for a lot of these chefs and for a lot of these producers was how do they get their products from, you know, a hundred miles away, Mm. 50 miles away into the Bay area? How do they actually, you know, service restaurants in a way where 
they're accustomed to, they're used to being able to place an order at, you know, 5 p.m. or midnight and get it next day delivery. Mm. And that that was the major bottleneck for these small to mid-scale producers that mm-hmm. I was working with at the restaurant level because the restaurants that I was working at really that drove them, that ethos of kind of going out of the way to source the best ingredients. But mm-hmm. how do we make it more accessible? How do we make it broader so that maybe a restaurant that doesn't have the chef or the staff to go way out of their way to source that way can still access this great bounty that California has to offer? Right. So and that, that was, was really- also at the chef level too. That wasn't even a consideration if I myself as a consumer want to get something that is, you know, pasture raised out in the farm, no hormones, any of that. That's absolutely a B2B type of, of mentality. Exactly. So it's like it's it's challenging for a restaurant that's driven to source that way. It's challenging for that producer to even service that restaurant. So there was a missing link that we identified pretty early on saying, how do we make this easy? Like, how do we create access for the producers and for the chefs to make it easy for them to buy this way? So that's very much kind of what we've decided, how we decided to approach the marketplace was find those those bottlenecks and try to remove them. And Creamco Meats wasn't your first meat company that you worked for. So how did you take those baby steps? What was your entry out of, let's say, the farmer's markets into more of the animal husbandry, you know, butchery type of world? Yeah, sure. So, of course, in culinary school, you learn all about sourcing and animals and butchery kind of a baseline uh and then of course when you're cooking practically you see it and do it every single day um when i decided to leave the line and look for other you know other opportunities in food i joined pray the ranch meat company right um and that was the farmer's market and then they also were doing uh, a butcher shop in the ferry building in san francisco Mm -hmm. as well as Mm -hmm. kind of like a a small b2b wholesale business Mm. um so that was really my school of hard knocks i learned a (laughs) lot during my my time at pray the ranch you know because it was this whole industry was in its infancy there really was nobody else doing it at that point in time so there wasn't like this this is like 2008 okay yeah that's good that's a good level set that's a good yeah. East Coast same. It's like percolating, like like uh, Fleischer's up in up in upstate New York, like Meat Hook as well, but not not common ground. Yeah, yeah, maybe two thousand six, two thousand eight, somewhere in that window. So you're starting to see that there's an interest for this type of uh, commerce, but it's difficult to do it. And so Prather was trying to address that a little bit, right? But they really like there was no blueprint. Nobody had done it before, so there was no nobody to look to and say. How do we do this aggregation model and still make sure that our farmers are represented? We're telling their stories, Mm. but we're the aggregator and we're able to kind of centralize distribution for these other entities that, that want these products. And so that was the problem that they were trying to solve for. I think in many ways they did solve for it. Like they found a lot of different solutions. Um, And so I learned a lot about the industry there. Then I joined a company that was more of like a a sheer CPG play. It was like a branded beef play mm. um, and experimented with that for a couple of years. It was interesting, but it was very singular. It wasn't like, it wasn't broad enough for my tastes where, you know, I, I want to work with lamb and sheep and mm-hmm, quail and mm-hmm, guinea mm-hmm. and rabbits. I want the whole spectrum of amazing bounty that California has to offer. Um, and so once that company sold in 2016, that's when I founded Creamco Meats. And, and that was really to kind of build that 
broader USDA platform that can work with all of those species of animals and bring them together into one place. Amazing. Well, listen, I want to take a quick musical break and then I want to talk about um, the start, the early days of Kumco Meats, and then also touch on what you talked about, which is working with purveyors who get you the animals to sell to the public. And then uh, hear a little bit of what you listen to when you're breaking down animals. We have a song from the archives here on Snacky Tunes on Heritage Radio Network. Snacky Tunes, we were chatting with Clifford Pollard, CEO of Creamco Meats. And right before the break, you're talking about how everything launched in 2016. And you also touched on this point about this idea of white labeling or working with purveyors and selling through a brand. And it's transparent now because if you go to the website, you can see who you work with. Right. But 
the way that most people buy their meat, they have no idea who it's coming from, where it's coming from, that there's farmers behind it. What was that approach like in 2016? Because you'd seen more of that, like, hey, this is actually growing. Right. Your yep. meat, things like that. How did you start to pick who you want to work with and how did you make sure that they got their recognition while also building your brand? Absolutely. Yeah. So that's, it's a great question. And we spent a lot of energy thinking about how do we do this? Like, like how do we do this right where we could still have a brand and have a presence, but we could also support other brands and support, you know, the origin story of where these, you know, producers are located, the animals, the breeds, et cetera. So we really looked at businesses that have done this well historically. Mm. So we looked at like the third wave coffee industry. Mm. We looked at natural wine. We looked at great chocolate companies mm-hmm. and kind of, you know, you can think of cream co as kind of like the coffee roaster. So we're buying mm-hmm. the raw material. We're buying the sheep, the cattle, but when it enters the butchery, that's where the roasting process is happening. And then when we put it out to market, you see it under kind of the cream co master brand, but then you also get that single origin information that you would get on a coffee bean. You see that it's, a light roast and that it comes from this, you know, this uh, elevation or, you know, it's it's from this variety or this single origin farm. So we're trying to kind of connect the dots in that similar fashion, but do it for meat, which we haven't seen done before because usually it's, it becomes an opaque process. Everybody's trying to homogenize their supply Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and they just want to support themselves and their brand. Whereas we're trying to kind of like thread that needle and find a way to be that coffee roaster, but for the meat industry. Top five analogy on this show all time. <laughs> Literally, yeah, while, that, is, that, is, there, yeah. that is, yeah, that makes total yeah. sense. Yeah, no, it's, I've never thought about it that way. And that, that really paints the clearest picture. And, you know, those relationships and that trust, look, before everything got so homogenized, before it became right. so corporate, butcher shops were generational. Like they handed it down. Those like you raise the pigs. My, I, I, my dad is the butcher, you know, you, your dad sold to my dad and things like that. Right. And those relationships got passed down, but then butcher shops, you know, they go out of fashion or farms go belly up. How did you get those people to trust you? And who are the new farmers or the new people? Are there parallels to those who were saying like, we want to provide animals in the same way that you want to provide a butcher shop. Yeah. You know, like historically butcher shops kind of would buy based on a big bucket. So they would buy like choice Angus. Mm-hmm. Right. And then they would, and then they would put out in the case choice Angus, that choice Angus might come from 30 different sources. Right. So that that's where you kind of start to lose a bit of transparency. Mm. Whereas we really like talk. I mean, we do aggregate and and we are very clear about where we're aggregating. For instance, like we have a, a beef to institution program where we're working with all the best mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. grass fed, grass finished uh, land to market certified regenerative producers on the West Coast. And we aggregate all of those products into this like coalition, this beef to institution coalition so that we could approach these large entities like public school systems or universities. So there are areas in which we are aggregating to create like a pool of products large enough to go scale into these huge institutions. But we're really focused on telling that single origin story as well Mm -hmm. and highlighting that all the way through our supply chain down to the labels. So like our PT ranch, broad breasted turkeys, 
Mm. You'll see it in the marketplace. You'll see Cream Co. Meats. But at the bottom of that label and highlighted, you will see single origin PT Ranch Farms, I own California. Awesome. So it's kind of, you know, we, we do have to figure out ways and approaches so that we could still do everything that we're doing at a moderate scale and make a difference, like have, be impactful with our actions. Um, but keeping everything very, very transparent is a core part of our ethos and kind of our pillars as a business. So that transparency resonates so much with people who are looking to pay a premium or to understand or where their meat comes from, or maybe see meat as a supplemental part of their diet. But in talking about scale, you know, you got to really get the word out and grow a fan base and say, this is how we're thinking about the future of the meat industry. We're thinking about the world as well, because it's all tied together with emissions and farming and things like that. How have you grown your fan base or your customer base and how much of it is, talking about this like better way of doing farming business and raising animals without being too preachy or alienating people who are like climate change is not real. Sure. Yeah, for sure. Well, I think a big part of our approach also is finding the intersection of impact and quality. Mm. So I'm a firm believer that if things don't taste great, you're not going to change behaviors. Mm -hmm. It has to taste phenomenal, right? Like we're not in the business of just selling what we often call meat shapes that, that, you know, are, are validated or certified in a certain way, but they're really just ovals and hexagons and triangles that are on a shelf somewhere. And they have all these certifications and bells and whistles, but they yeah, don't yeah, taste great. Yeah. Like they're not yeah. really built for like somebody who wants a culinary experience. So we've kind of built our following by finding that intersection, by being able to work with the best chefs um, by their followings, those chefs followings saying, Oh, like where is, you know, this chef buying from, like, what are they putting on their menu? This must be great quality. Oh, and I could access it at the grocery store. Phenomenal. Mm. So it's been a real kind of organic trickle down effect, but obviously working with chefs is a big part of our business model. So the biggest part of our business models, what we do is restaurant distribution. Mm. Um, and those products, like they're not like chefs aren't deciding to buy them because they're certified regenerative or they're grass fed, grass finished, or they're X, Y, and Z. They're buying them because they taste phenomenal. They know that their consumers can have a great experience with them. Um, and really, that's it. And they're consistent. Those are the big things. Like, like, like it has to taste good and it has to be consistent. Like those are the two biggest things for chef buyers. Like if it's not tasty and it's not consistent, then they can't put it on their menu. Like they need that to be functional. Yeah. I mean, look, if I'm dreaming about a steak in a city that I know that I haven't been to in three years – and I want to go back and have that steak, I would hope that it's the same product. And that just comes from the fact that you have that relationship as a chef with who's providing the meat and the person who's providing the meat has a relationship with that farmer. And it's all got to work together so I can have that same experience when I come back three, four, five years later. Exactly. You know, I mean, it's super, I think consistency is like one of the biggest points of feedback that we'll get from any of our chefs. Like if we're introducing a new program and even if like a pasture raised duck, if it's, if the weight range is swinging between like 3.5 pounds and 4.5 mm -hmm, pounds, mm -hmm. it's impossible for them to work with because they need those ducks to be basically the same size day in, day out because they have to butcher them properly. They have to set their temperatures and how they cook them properly. Their brine has to be just right. So mitigating that for chefs is a big part of what we do as a butchery 
because agriculture as a whole is really inconsistent. Natural agriculture is, is wildly inconsistent. Sure. Animals are different sizes of different shapes at all different times of the year. But what we do at the butchery, our coffee roasting, right, is to mm-hmm. make that raw material as consistent as possible mm. by the time it gets to the kitchen. Yeah. I mean, that's so important about being able to say that we are going to treat what we get with respect, but then also provide a usable, consistent ingredient. Um, I know that, you know, running a small business and things like that could really tie you to like an office or in your best case scenario, um, you're just going to farm after farm after farm, but you've done so much traveling and you've gone to the source all over the world, spreading sort of this regenerative message and, 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 um, looking at different sort of ecosystems and things like that. Why has it been important for you to travel? Where have you gone? What have you done? What have you said? Oh, so much. I mean, I, I think travel is just one of those essential mm-hmm. things that you have to do as a human being to really find fulfillment. You know, like it gives you so much perspective in life to do some traveling. And they say it's the only investment in life that you're guaranteed a return on. Mm-hmm. Um, and I full heartedly believe that. Um, but yeah, I mean, traveling opens up your eyes to how everybody else is approaching their food system, their food mm. problems, um, you know, working in the, the grape fields of Peru or bringing in the harvest in the Himalayas, like all of those experiences really kind of ground you to say, and we say this all the time, like food is inconvenient, like good food mm. is inconvenient. And in America, we've industrialized our food system out of this, this main ethos of like production and convenience, right? We want to make food sure. incredibly abundant and convenient for everybody and weaponize it for our global security. And we've created this really not very healthy food system Mm-mm. in America because those are the main drivers behind it. Um, so traveling, you kind of just see that from a different perspective, right? You see the hurdles and the challenges that other communities, other countries, other other places face when it comes to their cuisine and how they produce food, where it's being sourced from. And it just kind of adds a certain degree and level of perspective that's difficult to get if you aren't opening yourself up to those experiences. Yeah. I mean, it's both so global and then also so unique. And, you know, if you have the ability to pull the best practices and thinking from people who are coming at growing food and feeding the country, that isn't just the United States singular point of view. It, it can only help. It can only only make for a better system overall. Yeah, a lot of like the you know the poorer countries or the underdeveloped countries that we visited, like you see how critical like utilization of resources is. Mm-hmm. Like every last piece of everything is utilized. Not and here. We, not America. You know, like there's so much waste in America, but like. You go to Peru and you walk into a butcher shop or you go to a farmer's market in the Sacred Valley and you see like every inch of that animal has been utilized, has a purpose, it's going to go somewhere. And like that degree of respect for their animals that they're raising and how much they mean to them. In the Himalayas, like the the animals were literally used as insulation for the house, right? They would go underneath the house at night and and they would sleep underneath the house and provide a degree of insulation for the family living above them. Like just that, that connection between the animals and the food, like it it does really give you a whole different perspective. Yeah. It's, it's uh, it really gives a whole 
definition to ecosystem. Um, Mm -hmm. Speaking of using the whole animal, I know that you have done a lot of butchering and processing in your life. And I wanted to talk a little bit about what you listen to when you're just in it, when you're working, you got the stuff in, you got the animals that need to be processed. What's on the soundtrack? Is it contemplative? Is it heavy metal? Is it favorite tunes? What are you rocking on the sound system? <laughs> yeah, it's a mix depending on who's, who owns the sound system at that particular point in time. But I would how, say it's almost... How do you, uh, real quick, because everyone has a different answer. How does ownership work? Is it like first in, first song? Or is it like rotating it's, by day? It's, it's usually first in, first song, and then okay. like, and then a bit of rotation at certain points in the day. You know, somebody goes on break and they come back to a whole different soundtrack, you know. <laughs> um, but it's almost always upbeat. Sure. I prefer like a little bit of like you know techno or like some sort of like mm. you know like really get your your groove going type music because I mean just like when you're working in a kitchen, I mean you're moving right. You got to have a sense yeah, of urgency yeah. in the butchery, so you really kind of want it to be music that. It, like it enables that movement kind of gets you feeling like you should be moving quickly and, you know, on your toes. Yeah, no. And also that consistent beat helps with the rhythm of the, the cutting and whatnot. Absolutely. Yeah. So, I mean, little DJ Tiesto, like <laughs> raise the roof in there, you know, and you're breaking down 10 head of, of beef. It, it, it works phenomenally. Yeah. And when the song drops back in, you know, that's when you can really get the saws out and really get to work. <laughs> exactly. Uh, well, Clifford, I can't thank you enough. And, you know, I could say as someone who's had the meat, it does make a difference. Like the stuff that I put in my grill and cooked in my house that's come from you has always been fantastic. And want to make sure that people can also have the same experience. So if um, they want to order food or follow along or look at what you're up to, where can they go? How can they get some of what you're, what you're cranking out? Yeah. So of course, a creamco uh, to order directly from us. Um, and then we also have a bunch of great small little retailers like wine and eggs and cookbook mm. market, et cetera, mm-hmm. in the LA area. Gwen butchery Italy actually has a lot of our stuff as well. Um, but yeah, order direct creamcomeats.com. We ship every week to Southern California and all over NorCal. So that's always the best place. Awesome. And for our national listeners, I went back on the East coast. Can they also dig in? You can. I mean, so, so Italy's, uh, we're, we're kind yeah. of nationally launched with Italy. So oh, if you're great. on like in, in New York, you, you can find our stuff there. Um, and we're, you know, as far as direct shipping, we're like, Oregon, Washington, California, Arizona, like primarily West Coast, but hopefully in 2023, later in the year, we're going to be opening up to national shipping. So amazing. Hey, just just one more reason to come West, you know, sunshine and, <laughs> and, and great. Sunshining. Beef. Yep. And it's never going to rain again after this winter. So oh this is it. <laughs> oh, yeah, right. Uh, we'll see about that. But listen, I can't thank you enough. Appreciate it. Shout out to Chris for uh, introducing me to your great meats. We have a song from the archives and then a live performance here on Snacky Tunes on Heritage Radio Network.
This episode is brought to you by Roberta's, home of Heritage Radio Network for 10 years. Roberta's was founded in Bushwick in 2008 and has become one of the most iconic restaurants in the country. HRN made its home inside of Roberta's in 2009, and together they have become part of the DIY fabric of the neighborhood. Roberta's, the pizza restaurant, is open for lunch and dinner seven days a week and serves much more than just the famous wood-fired pizzas. Their team dreams up new salads, pastas, and sandwiches on the regular. Roberta's Tiki Bar is alive and well in the back garden, serving up frozen drinks in the summer and hot toddies in the winter. Stop by the bakery and takeout spot next door for fresh breads, sticky buns, and pizzas to go. And of course, there's the two Michelin-starred Blanca tucked away in the garden for truly daring diners. But Roberta's also extends beyond Bushwick, with multiple locations in New York City and now in Los Angeles. You can also find their frozen pies in grocery stores around the country. The spirit of Roberta's, like Heritage Radio Network, is everywhere. Here's to many more years of pizza-powered radio. Coming this spring, we're working on something big for opening soon. Opening a restaurant can sometimes take months or even years. So I have this one consulting client that's been three months away from opening for the past year. And I had a calendar reminder show up today, and the reminder was that our goal was to open tomorrow. But this spring, you'll be able to hear it in just a few hours. On March 30th, he had passed away, and then on March 31st, he had come back to life. And then on April 2nd, he had passed away again. And I was like, okay, my regards to the family. I don't even know how to receive this information. So tune in as we follow one of Brooklyn's best and brightest young chefs and restaurateurs on their journey from start to open doors. Alex, you need to put more money in. We're out. We can't pay anybody. He is the worst. Oh my God, that guy. It's the build. Subscribe to Opening Soon from Heritage Radio Network, wherever you listen to podcasts. Welcome back to Snacky Tunes. Welcome, Triple Hex, to the studio on this kind of weird, not fall, not winter, not anything, weird weather day. Um, Do you want to go around the room and introduce yourselves? Yeah, hi, I'm Dave. Chip. Lila. Um, when I was reading about you guys, there's like two things that struck me. Um, one, bands can now be say they're from the early aughts and there's like some distance there, which I didn't like, which I used to not think is like that, like a time frame that was significant. Uh, and you also probably have released records on the best record label names, like collectively, as all, of all time. I want to dream that it's like just one record label and you're just like cycling out different, like cool names. I just want to read them just because they're so <laughs> rad. Um, Thigh High Records, uh, Lucinda Records, Mona Me Records, uh, Dead Goat Records. I mean, I'll go on. But, but it's like, just like, I was like, are they fucking with me or is this just like awesome? So do you pick it based on name or? Um, they're not our, all our labels. <laughs> yeah. Lucinda's in, in Spain. The Mona Me was another label in New York. And then uh, Death Goat's a new one, but Thigh High is our, was the triple hex. Okay. Label, so. I mean, fantastic. Yeah. Just really just, I mean, the bar is really, really, really high uh, for that. Um, how did you all form and, and meet? Um, uh, I knew Chip for a while, I guess, and on Ludlow Street, I guess, right? Yeah, we met on Ludlow. Like, actually on the street? Yeah, literally. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Can you tell the story? Because, like, that seems like such, like, an old New York story. We also met on Ludlow Street yeah, later. Actually, all, actually, the same, all from TG 170, I guess, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah, uh, which is, like, right above uh, the recording 
studio that uh, Triple Hex records on. Yeah, New York Head Studio was in a Maverick Ray's uh, recording studio was in a basement. Okay. And uh, TG-170 was above it. So Triple Hex was recording one time, and uh, we didn't have a bass player. And at the time, it was just a drummer and myself. And uh, the old drummer, Julie, was like, oh, Chip plays keyboards upstairs. Let's go grab her. You know, So she introduced herself to Chip, and, yeah. and she's been in the band since. I'd but- always be outside smoking cigarettes. And uh, we literally just met. I was outside smoking a cigarette. Hey, you want to play with us? That's like a story straight out of the 70s, which is great because like, <laughs> it evokes your, your music very well. It's like... It's like the shorthand of like finding someone who like just put their band references on a flyer with a tearaway number that doesn't have an error code because there was no <laughs> yeah, need. Totally, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, wait, did you go and record that that day immediately? Not that day, but we worked on some some stuff. Probably like maybe a month later. Yeah. Oh, that's pretty great. Yeah. So you could like work and then run downstairs and then go back upstairs. Yeah. Smoke uh, breaks, take come down. Put it yeah. Back. Yeah. Like yeah. like hey, we noticed your smoke breaks went from like five minutes to like two hours. Um, <laughs> a day. <laughs> a day. Uh, yeah. Or like you know, a year. But you know, it's like. Um, and then wait. So what's your meeting on the street story? Well, yeah. she you met her at uh, TG yeah, once at the I'm store just, that Chippy's work at. I came into the street and okay. just like inserted myself there. <laughs> did you Sorry. offer up? Did you like? Have a pair of drumsticks with you? Or did you offer well, that? <laughs> We're like just you know. Just, I probably <laughs> did, like yeah. in my bag. So we you know we met and started working together, became friends. And I was playing with some other bands at the time. I did fill in for them on a show back in the day, um, but <laughs> I was a little intimidated by. Uh, but yeah, so she. <laughs> yeah, so she met. It was all Ludlow, I guess. We all met yeah, we all met on Ludlow. Uh, uh, so anyone listening, if you want to get into this band, just like hang out on Ludlow Street and just kind of just like walk. Do you need to be like carrying like an instrument, maybe like a guitar or like a xylophone? Like yeah, yeah, yeah. Guitar would be good. Probably. Yeah. Um, why don't we hear a song? Okay. Sure. What are you going to play first? I'll play a song off the new record called "Long Hot Summer." Okay. And what record label is this on? Death Goat. Perfect. Oh. Which is my favorite, by the way. It is. Oh, yeah. Okay. <laughs> Y'all sat loud?
all the influences you can hear in the music but one of the ones that I like the most is New York I'm kind of curious like how this city now works its way uh, into your music and how you guys make your sound recently like New York in modern day yeah um, yeah, I'm not really sure how it's I think it's just kind of probably in all our blood from growing up I'm, I'm guessing right I mean are you all from here, or? Yeah, well, Lila's from the Bronx, right? Chip is from Long Island. I'm from upstate, yeah. but we all been. I've been here for like 20 years. Yeah. all of us. So, what is school. it about the city that, like, I mean, just adds the the lay, that layer into the the music? Well, you know, that song is just like Long Hot Summer. It's kind of like, oh yeah, and it gets really <laughs> hot, and things are just about to like kick off. You know what I mean? At any minute, like, yeah. like 
everyone's about to like fight and like lose their shit. So it's kind of like <laughs> you can hear it in there you for can, sure. Yeah, you can really feel it in a, on a hot summer night. You know, it's just like yeah, just like listening to that song just made me think of like the first summer living here being like, I don't need a fucking air conditioner. And then, like, come August, I just, like, what was I thinking? And yeah. just, like, but not having the money and just being like, this is a long fucking summer. Yeah, totally. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So that's where I came from. I think New York is always kind of like, you know, we're from here, so it's kind of just always works its way into our bloodstream, mothery, you know. Do you believe, like, that argument that people, like, put out that, like, New York's dead and, like, no one can do things as an artist here and, like, everything's moving away? I mean, I don't really, I don't believe that. I mean, I think, if you, I don't know, that's my opinion. I mean, I think you can probably move anywhere and make art. I think New York is probably, it's my home. It's our home. So what are we going to do? Like pack up and leave? Who else will have us? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Who else would have, I don't know, like some small town. Pittsburgh, I guess everyone's moving to Pittsburgh. I want to go to Detroit, pardon me. Yeah. Pittsburgh is cool though. Yeah. That's right here. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, and then like out over the years, like it kind of seems like it's ingrained in, in it. I just think that people maybe sometimes get like, they just, it's just not, the music just isn't where they left it. It just like kind of moves, but it's always kind of like out there and yeah. finding inspiration. Yeah, I think so. I mean, Lou Reed used to sing about like, don't go through the park at night. And that, that was like Union Square. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, when was the last time <laughs> Union Square was really dangerous and there was like prostitutes in Union Square, like literally like what, 35, 40 years ago, probably or something, you know, so... Yeah. Now it's probably like just like don't go to Ridgewood at like two AM on a Wednesday. Exactly, yeah. exactly, yeah. Yeah. Which is not a great lyric, but you know. Um <laughs> Can we hear another song? Sure. Yeah. Uh what's this one? I will do um Trouble and Waters is off the new record as well. Okay, great. Get Lila all set up then. <clears throat> You all set or? Thank you. 
July. A crooked smile without foresight. I drag my feet and I walk around. I'm so sick and tired of being down. Shoveling water washing over me. Drowning my thoughts Of future desires There's trouble and water Washing over me Drowning my thoughts Of future desires There's trouble and water Washing over me Drowning my thoughts future desires There's trouble following me wherever I'll go There's trouble and water washing over me Drowning my thoughts of future desires There's trouble Water washing over me Drowning my thoughts For future desires Talk about the new record. Uh, how did this come into existence? Um, I guess we started working on Chip and I did, I don't know, like three years ago. And uh, um, we wrote, like I guess, five songs for it. And then we just stopped playing for a bit, kind of, because we were you know, financing it all ourselves. I guess we kind of ran out of money. And then last year we started, uh, you know, actually Matt from the studio is gracious enough to, like, do that for us but anyhow um and then last year we got lila back in the fold and we just went back and recorded another six songs with her you know in the fall and now we're putting it out you know next month that's awesome um 
how is it, I mean, writing a song over like that uh, record that over that many years, um, did the songs from three years ago kind of still stay true to now, or like did you go back and like kind of re-evaluate uh, them or, or update them? Yeah, we wanted you know we updated them a little bit. But we wanted to just we just wrote new songs as well. <laughs> You're like, sorry guys, yeah. so, sorry you don't get to come into keep the it music. moving. Yeah, keep yeah. it moving. Keep yeah. it moving. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and what kind of comes out on this record? Like, I mean, uh, maybe more so than some of the other uh, releases, either lyrically or sonically or both. Um, I think lyrically, maybe we you know expand a little bit more, like triple you know more lyrics on this on this record, a few songs, right? Yeah, and then. So, expanded a little bit that way vocally, lyrically on that, and then, uh, I don't know, I guess we just kind of, we don't really have like a set in stone, we kind of sometimes, I guess all the songs kind of turn out, and they kind of all sound like triple hex, but we kind of don't go in there saying, this is what we're going to sound like, yeah. we just kind of write the songs, and they kind of... When does it become a, a, I always am curious to know from Dreamers, like, when does it become like an idea into a triple hex because I mean you've, you've been on with multiple bands mm-hmm. here and um, they like I mean they sit in maybe like a similar universe but they definitely don't have the same sound mm-hmm. so like when does something become a triple hex song in your eyes when we played on this radio station right now <laughs> <laughs> oh, okay well yes obviously that, yeah, that is the gateway for, yeah and that's official <laughs> But what, when is it that you're, like, in the process that you're just like, okay, like, this finally sounds like something that, like, we could be self-identified as or, like, hang our uh, hat on? I think it's just, like, what we feel. Like, we, you know, there's a lot of songs we'll rehearse, every, you know, I rehearse all this over and over, and sometimes we'll change it a little bit, and it, sometimes it just doesn't really feel like it's a... I guess it's more like what songs don't feel like Triple Hex mm. as opposed to which songs Interesting. do. So. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's odd ownership of, like, something that comes from almost nowhere, to then bring it in to like make it your own, uh, your own. Yeah, exactly. In that way, um, is it, are there some that are just instantaneous, and there are others that like take a while to kind of like break open? Yes, exactly. Yeah, some songs are written in like you know, literally an hour, you know, and that's it. Like the last song we'll play today, <laughs> you know? and and then other ones take a long time, you know. And like I thought it was interesting recording. Like a lot of it would be done. There, which I think is cool. yeah, and that's right there. What makes them? Oh, so like in the studio for for you guys, it was kind of like in the post production or in no, the like recording. In a, this is the first time Lila recorded with us, yeah. and a lot of times, like some of our songs will have like a, definitely a certain framework of what we do, and other songs were like, well, this is the chord progression kind of, you know, and then <laughs> we'll go in and then just kind of work on it there in the studio. Which is the best part of recording. Yeah. That was so cool. <laughs> um, well, I want to make sure we have time for one more song and just let you guys kind of breathe into that. Um, okay. But I want to thank um, MP Schiff for coming on. Uh, I want to thank Jordana for being my go- ghost co-host, co-host mistress. Um, but uh, especially a big, 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 big thank you to Liz, who has been our engineer for a long time. Uh, we have grown the show together. She's going somewhere else, um, which I we won't say, but... Thank you for putting up with Snacky Tunes, uh, where I know we're pains. Um, shout out to Darren and Anna, my parents, and my Berliner, who's my favorite. Uh, what's the name of the last song you're going to... Um, it's called Love Song. Oh, wait. And where can people find you, get the new record, see Triple Hex Live Night? That's out there somewhere. Who knows? Okay, fine. Yeah. <laughs> okay, cool. You lost, you lost. That's a great answer. Um, everyone else is super ready. You're just like, fucking find it. Yeah. yeah. Or go to Ludlow. 
Yeah, yeah, Ludlow. Okay. We'll be yeah, there. Yeah, yeah, we'll be at Ludlow. <laughs> yeah, heading up. All Ludlow. Yeah, all Ludlow. Yeah, all Ludlow. Ludlow from like 10 years ago, maybe. Yeah, but. That's right. Um, all right, well, thanks for coming on. Thank you. Um, we'll be back next week with another episode of Snacky Things. Thanks. Yeah, go ahead. I just want to fuck. I don't want to love songs. I just want to fuck. I don't want to love songs. I just want to fuck. I don't want to love songs. I just want to fuck. I don't want to love songs. I just want to fuck. Oh, yeah. You and me. Bring a friend and make it free. Ask your friend to come along We'll stay up all night We talk about food We talk about music With musical dudes Finger on the pulse Snacky Snacky Tunes is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. Keep in touch at heritageradionetwork.org slash subscribe.